The mass of people expect a king or queen to look and play the part. They want to see a crown and scepter and all that sort of thing. They want the gilding for their money. The politician Viscount Halifax's views on the role of the monarchy were expressed to Queen Victoria's secretary during her protracted mourning for her beloved husband, Albert. Although his remarks had a very specific purpose, namely to persuade the Queen out of her self-imposed retirement, they neatly encapsulate the value that his fellow Victorians placed on the crown. Arguably, it's a value that has changed little in the 150 or so years since. By the time Victoria ascended the throne in 1837, the sovereign no longer ruled, they reigned. Since the glorious revolution of 1688, real power had been vested in the government, not the crown. Thus, Victoria was able to give up her public duties for more than a decade after Albert's death in 1861, safe in the knowledge that it would be business as usual for her ministers. The same scenario would have been inconceivable during the centuries of personal rule that had preceded 1688, when the likes of William the Conqueror, Edward I and Henry VIII had wielded authority over every aspect of their subjects' lives. And yet, as Lord Halifax was at pains to point out, the sovereign's absence still had far-reaching consequences. Victoria's people missed the reassuring, if empty, symbol of national leadership that she provided. They also missed the pomp and pageantry, the royal visits, processions and ceremony that had been a feature of life for more than a millennium. What mattered to the vast majority of her subjects was not the constitutional but the theatrical side of monarchy, as one contemporary reflected. The same is true of today's monarchy. Politically, Queen Elizabeth II has less power than her subjects, for they can vote a new government in, while she can only acknowledge its arrival. Yet for as long as the monarch retains the three traditional functions cited by the Victorian essayist Walter Badgett, to be consulted, to encourage and to warn, she can bring the value of a perspective drawn from longer and wider experience. The fact that the British monarchy is hereditary rather than being reliant upon the popularity contest fought out between the leaders of the main political parties enables it to stay focused upon the well-being of the nation as a whole and not be distracted by what is likely to win the most votes. The monarch's constitutional role might serve a useful purpose but on its own, it's hardly enough to ensure the survival of this ancient institution. This is where the gilding that Lord Halifax referred to comes in. The real power of the crown comes from the almost magical aura with which it is surrounded. Perhaps the most profound satisfaction that royalty provides is that it gives us a paradise to inhabit – remarked the writer Virginia Woolf on the eve of the Second World War. In a culture obsessed with celebrities, the royal family has star quality in abundance. To critics, the froth and saccharine and goggling adulation of committed monarchists is mindless. But recent political history has proved how potent such emotional responses can be. Witness the Brexit campaign of 2016.
Elizabeth II is already Britain's longest reigning monarch, having overtaken her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, on the 9th of September 2015, and the longest reigning female head of state in the world. In 2024, she is set to take the world record from Louis XIV, the so-called Sun King of France, who reigned for 72 years and 110 days. As the Queen approaches the 70th anniversary of her accession in February 2022, debates about the role of the monarchy are bound to be reignited. The focus of these will no doubt be on its future, yet the key to this lies in its past. In the light of this, there has never been a more apposite moment to consider the history of the British monarchy.